0: Christ was on this wise, says the world, and said the Pope, as he greeted the world and wished for peace on earth, goodwill toward men in about 52 different languages, as they held special Christ mass in the basilica called St. Peter's. And of course, all over the world, the so-called Christian world today, there are millions upon millions of people gathering around long since, I'm sure. The children in most parts of the world have opened the packages beneath the tree, and right now many of them are outside in the snow on their new little sled, or their new little red tricycle, or a wagon, or holding up various little toys. Some of them are toy machine guns, others are ninja turtles, and little toy soldiers, and video games, and who knows what all, but there are of course, millions upon millions of dollars represented in all of the gifts that have been exchanged on this Christmas day, the day of the Mass of Christ. In Matthew, the first chapter in verse 18, it says, "...the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. A question in passing for those who believe that God is composed of three distinct beings, although they deny the word being has any connection with the Trinity, they prefer to use a completely different term, make it so vague it's virtually inapprehensible and something you cannot understand. If the Holy Spirit is a member of the God family, that hooded, wraith like ghost-like creature that you never really see in the idols or the icons, but you hear addressed in various sermons or references made by anything from the Catholic Encyclopedia to Pentecostal people about the Holy Ghost, you see Mary, you see Jesus, the baby in arms, you see the dead Christ on the cross, you see Jesus in all of his various pictures and guises in the beautiful stained-glass windows and the statuary that adorn some of the big basilicas in Europe and here in the United States. But you never see a hooded specter-like being because there is never a face, either male or female. There is no character or specific being assigned to the Holy Spirit. And so no one knows what the Holy Spirit looks like. But in the Trinitarian doctrine, the Holy Spirit is a member of the divine triune beings, or beings, the triumvirate, called the Trinity, consisting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mary was to be found with child of and by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Then who was Jesus' Father? Well, obviously, if you're in the fourth grade in English class, obviously the only answer to that is the Holy Spirit. Well, then why did Jesus pray to his Father? And why did he say that when you pray, you're to say, Our Father, which art in heaven? Why didn't he pray, O Holy Spirit, which art in heaven? It's a question. You oftentimes, if you read the Bible the way it is, let it say what it says and mean what it says run into all kinds of problems with tradition, as we shall see very shortly in reading these accounts. And these scriptures, by the way, have been repeated and repeated thousands of times by children in Christmas plays, in school, thousands of times in sermons all across the land. And right now, I would imagine, somewhere, by some uh, quirk of fate, I will be reading along in the book of Matthew and probably will be reading together with some television program or some play or some presentation somewhere because of all things in the Protestant world this is a rare 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 occasion when many people go to church on the Sabbath (laughs) because it's Christmas Day then Joseph her husband sure enough you look up the term in the original Greek and it means exactly what it says he was her husband in the Jewish way of Marrying, there was a period of time when even after they were married and they were bound together as husband and wife, but to prevent any surprises, they could not consummate the marriage until some months later, approximately six months later, to make sure that there were no premarital pregnancies, but they were married, just as married as anyone has ever been married. Being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily, privately. There is some evidence to indicate that he may have been some years older than Mary. She may have been down in her early 20s or so, and he may have been 40 or older. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. And once again, the Greek word means exactly what it says, wife. Married wife. What does it mean, take unto thee? Marry thy wife. means exactly what it says. When a husband takes unto him his wife, it is for the purpose of living together in nuptial bliss, cohabiting, living, making love, to speak frankly, whenever the mood strikes, either one or both. And that's exactly what is implied here. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name, Joshua in the original Hebrew. Eosius, or Jesus, was the Greek, coming into the English. It's really an unfortunate sound in the English language, which is a pagan tongue derived from the old Nordic tongues, primarily high German, and some of the early Scandinavian tongues, with a hard sound of J, rather than the Y, which is softer. And the way many people pronounce it in the Bible Belt in the Southeastern United States makes it almost a strange-sounding word. Jesus is rather a prettier sound in the Latin, but Yahshua is a very nice-sounding word, and that's the exact transliterated equivalent in Hebrew, Yahshua, or if you prefer the Joshua with a stronger sound that we give it in English. And it means, really, the Savior, God with us. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall conceive with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. It says, a prophet. Which prophet? It was the prophet Isaiah. If you will turn to that prophecy back in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, we will read the prophecy to which this scripture refers. Isaiah 7, Israel was allied with Syria against Judah. Warfare was impending. This is a case that is discovered in 2 Kings, the 16th chapter as well, and where Isaiah talks about what is going to happen as a result of the attack of the combined armies of Syria and Israel, and Israel is going to attack Jerusalem. Now try to fit that in the understanding of millions of people in the Protestant world today who have no knowledge whatsoever of the complete separate dynasties and the separate national histories of the Jews and the ten-tribed Israel with the capital of Samaria. You can read all of the scriptures that lead up to it. And finally, in verse 14, we read of that scripture, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. El- is God, and Imanu, manu, meaning with you, God with you or God with us. Butter and honey, well, actually it means curds and honey, shall he eat. There's a very lengthy article on that in the Critical and Experimental Commentary that talks about the common uh, foods that were available and that every Hebrew child ate that kind of food. And he will eat it until the time when he is old enough to know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil, and choose the good, before he grows up to be, as they say, about three years of age or so, the land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. So the type and the anti-type fade back into the prophecy about the impending attack upon Jerusalem. Back in Matthew, the first chapter, now we've gone to the Old Testament, the prophecy of Isaiah, and we read the original of how he is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till. Now, you all know that that language was necessary for the old King James translators. When you see in the very first few chapters of the book of Genesis, when it says, Adam knew his wife. Then you've got to go to all these translators and all of the various commentaries, and you've got to ferret out the original Hebrew because they you couldn't bring themselves to say that he made love to his wife. They came together as human beings in love and produced a child. It wasn't that somebody came up and said, Adam, this is Eve. Eve, this is Adam. Well, how do you do? How are you there? Well, when this says that he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, The strong implication is that after the birth of that child, after the required days, that he did, quote, know his wife in the same way that any other man would know his wife in marital love. Isn't that true? And, of course, the Bible does show that there were at least seven children, and many of them are named, Joseph and Simon and Judas and so on, and there were at least two girls because he had sisters, plural, there may have been three or four or even more. So Mary became the mother of at least seven children, and this is absolutely demonstrated from internal evidence within the Bible. Isn't it amazing how little people know about the hero of this day, who is supposed to be Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and this day is supposed to be his birthday? And it isn't at all, but it is many, many months later. By this day, Jesus Christ was many months old because he had been born in the autumn. "...knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son." Look up the Greek. means what it says. If it were as the Catholic Church that takes from this concept the idea of Jesus' own life, that priests should remain celibate and should never marry, then it would say only born son, not firstborn. Because, you see, there was a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and so on. And he called his name Jesus." Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, there came magi, the original word is magi, wise men, from the east to Jerusalem. How many does it say there were? It doesn't say. Does it say they were kings? It doesn't say that. There's not one word in the text, but we can sing, We three kings of Orient are, can't we? So, tradition says they were kings. No, they were not kings. They were magi from the Magus, and they were probably from Persia, and they may well have been students of Zoroaster. But as many of the other commentaries say, and as I think the internal evidence is obvious, and as Bullinger's companion Bible, from which I'll read a little later, also says, the star was very likely, exactly as the Bible implies in Revelation, the first chapter in verse 20, where it uses stars and angels as synonymous And it says, Where is he, they asked, that was born King of the Jews, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. There was no way through celestial navigation, because they didn't even have the implements that were way, way later in coming, like astrolobes and so on, that they could begin to determine navigation by the stars. It wasn't even known in that day. And if it had been, there was no way it could actually single out a particular house in a particular part of one block of one city, and there are books and there are encyclopedic articles written about what kind of a star it was, and everything involved in astrology and in stargazing is all involved in this. All kinds of arguments. You read the footnotes in Bullinger's Companion Bible, he says, and he quotes another scripture out of Numbers and other examples in the Bible of stars, which are obviously angelic of uh, beings, and he says, the whole difficulty is solved if you simply know that it was an angel that led these people, and it stood over the manger where Jesus Christ was, and led them there. We have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Well, because there was a great deal of controversy, a great deal of talk about that prophecy we just read, and many others besides in the Old Testament about a Messiah that was to come who was going to be called the Deliverer of His people, God with us, the Savior of the Jews, and the King of the Jews. That would have been competition. That would have been a very, very bad thing for Herod because it could have threatened his throne. So when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes and the people together, he wanted all of his experts and all of his various intelligentsia and his researchers, he demanded to them where Christ should be born. And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Now, I won't go back to the Old Testament reference here, but you can see it in your interlinear. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. Art not the least among the princes of Judah. Notice it says in the Bible, it is evident our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which the Bible said nothing concerning the priesthood. And as the Samaritan woman said at the well, how is it thou being a Jew? Talk to me who am a Samaritan, because the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And once again, we see that Jesus was a Jew. Now that can get you not only in argument, but maybe a fight and maybe in jeopardy of your life in some portions of the world, where there are people who want to worship Jesus, but hate the Jews. And so they deny that Jesus was a Jew. There are some who believe that Jesus was a black man. There are others who believe he was a mushroom. There are some who believe he never walked the earth. He was merely the figment of the imagination of a lot of people. And there are others who think the whole story was a lie that was deliberately concocted by a lot of people who got high on various drugs and started a cult back at that time. For out of these shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And the prophecy did talk about Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And they were quoting that scripture to Herod. When Herod had called the wise men privately, he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Now that travel would have been quite difficult from the area that probably today is Kurdistan or maybe Afghanistan. It would have taken them many days, in the very least a few weeks, if not a month or two or three, from the time they saw the star to have arrived in Bethlehem riding on a horse or a donkey or a camel or walking alongside one when he got tired. And so he inquired of what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. Again, I looked it up again to refresh my memory today. The Greek word means a young lad, a young child, a toddler, who could now either be a babe in arms or a little boy walking about. It does not specify age, but it certainly does not say infant, meaning a little nursing baby of only a day or two or a matter of hours old. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. An artifice, of course. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. Oh, then the star was what moved. The wise men didn't move under the star. It, the star, went before them. But they will argue. And you can get, as I said, books and encyclopedic-length articles talking about which... A sign in Virgo or Venus or Jupiter or whatever was doing what at this time, and all kinds of astrological significances are given to it. And it went before them till it, the star, came and stood over where the young child was. It may have only been a very few hundred feet in the air. A bright, bright light burning like an acetylene torch, and it was an angelic messenger that was leading these magi to the place where Jesus was. And when they saw the star, because they saw it again now that it led them to the city, they didn't know exactly the block of the house, they had been called to Herod, now they were going to go see the the child at long last, and they rejoiced with great joy. When they were come into the manger, they saw... Now, I did that deliberately to see if you were following along. It doesn't say that he was in the manger, does it? It says he was in a house. Because, you see, after the birth, they moved into a house. And they were in that house for a good little while. Maybe, actually, some weeks, if not some months, because the average woman who gives birth to a baby doesn't immediately just jump up and walk 90 miles back to where she came from nor does she jump up and climb onto a, sa- to a saddle atop a camel and do the same thing. So she was going to stay there to recuperate and to get her health back, to get in shape before they took a journey anywhere. So when they came into the house, now this isn't what they read in the churches, or if they do, they go over it so quickly that they don't want to defeat the manger scene behind them or on their front lawn. And that is, of course, a part of the trappings of Christmas. They've got to have it in a manger. So they don't want to disturb that by reading the Bible the way it really is. Came into the house and saw the young child, the identical word that was used earlier, a young child, with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, plural, gold. Doesn't say how much, or in what form, or of what value. The commentaries tend to say it was only for their immediate needs, but that it was sufficient for them to visit. Egypt and to remain there and to come back until Joseph could then salvage some more money out of his business of site preparation and of timbers and of foundations and of homes and sheds and public buildings and of and building. And he was in a building trade and taught his children the same trade. So they tend to believe that it wasn't uh, $100,000 in our coin today, or a million dollars, but perhaps a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, enough for their immediate needs. And frankincense, that was a very rare kind of an odor that could be used for all kinds of purposes, whether on your body or for whatever. And myrrh, same comment, but they were of great value. Because there were three types of gifts, all of mythology and tradition has said that there were three wise men. The Bible says nothing about that. There could have been seven. I tend to think that there were seven for an obvious reason. There could have been 12. That's equally attractive to me. There could have been two. There could have been four or five or any number up to 120. The Bible simply doesn't say. It just gives you three categories of gifts, but... There are supposed to be, they're always wearing crowns, nothing at all in the Bible is said about them being kings of countries, just wise men, educated men, men of letters, men who had studied, men who knew the Scriptures, in this case, and where even the Eastern world was coming to bow down before the Savior of the world. And being warned of God, God dealt with these men. They were not evil, they were not satanic. They didn't represent Satan or the magicians, they were people who no matter their background understood the prophecies of the Bible, and that this in fact was the arrival on this earth of the Savior of mankind. And God rewarded them by warning them in a dream they should not return to Herod, and they departed into their own country another way. They might have had their lives forfeit if they had. Herod might have killed them as well to shut them up, but they went on out and disappeared and Herod couldn't find them. Now when they were departed, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child, same word. Now again, you're not not dealing with a two-day-old baby here, but with a young child and his mother who has already recuperated sufficiently to be able to travel. And flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Four times that term is used I looked it up in the Greek, looked it up in the Companion, looked it up in Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It means a young child, not a tiny little baby uh, that is only a few days old. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Time after time after time, Halley's little Bible handbook, the little thick blue one that you can buy in any Bible bookstore, uh, catalogs all of the many, many Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled one right after the other about the birth, the early days, the youth, and the life of Jesus Christ, and the corroboration from the Old Testament prophets that he was born, he was the Son of God, he was the Savior of the world. There's a beautiful section in the uh, portion about the resurrection of Christ where Halley's goes into all of the logical reasoning of how Jesus Christ was, in fact, resurrected from the dead. How if it were an artifice that no man goes out and is burned at the stake or crucified upside down or sawn asunder or thrown to lions or otherwise tortured in unimaginable excruciating pain for a farce, which he knows to be untrue. People do not give their lives, as did James, the brother of John, who was beheaded with a sword, not a guillotine, for what they know to be a lie. And Halley's beautifully goes through every one of it. It wouldn't have been the Jews because they would have displayed the body. It wouldn't have been the Romans because they would have done the same thing. And shows by logic, as well as internal evidence in the Bible, that Jesus Christ, in fact, was dead and buried and was resurrected. And it really did exist. Because you can meet people today by the millions who will tell you, oh, this is all just a lot of mythology. Jesus never really walked the earth. He's a creation of these people that, that wanted a religion. They believe that it's all a myth, all a beddy story, that he wasn't real. Now, it says that that prophecy might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked to the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children. The word children means children on up, walking about now, a weaned child of an older age that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof. Probably the whole province of Judea. Now, it may have meant thousands of children. Even in the movies about Jesus Christ, superstar, or uh, the robe, or whatever, I have never seen Hollywood dramatize what this must have been like. And it would be a horrible thing to contemplate. Thousands upon thousands of homes with the doors being battered down. People trying to hide their children. People trying to flee. People trying to get across the border. And the border being sealed because of Herod's orders. And big soldiers coming in and just ripping a little boy out of the arms of a sobbing mother. And throwing it up against the wall or catching it on the tip of a spear or something. And brutally murdering thousands of children. Interesting, isn't it? when in retrospect you realize when he came back that in that one province there was a two-year gap moving right on through the society during which there were no boys of that particular age only from the day following this mass murder when a baby was born was it safe only a baby that was two years plus was safe a boy but from two down to a day old, they were all murdered, and Jesus escaped. It says, He slew all the children and all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which He had diligently inquired of the wise men. Help me out. You come to a conclusion on this. See where you would, if you put a chart out here that represented 24 months, what would you say, if putting yourself what you don't want to do in the place of Herod, if you're trying to make sure, how far would you go the other side of what you think, according to the time you learn from the wise men, that they arrived there and the star appeared and the lapse of time between the star appearing and their journey and their arrival, how safe would you want to be? I've thought about that for years and I've always arrived at one year. But I'm just sort of splitting the difference. I'm just saying if you've got 24 months, it seems logical to me that Herod thought the child was about one year of age. If he had thought six months, he wouldn't have risked the political fallout and the potential rising up of the populaces to kill children of from one to two that he didn't need to kill. So it seems to me that the logical deduction is that the child might have been, and he thought this because of what he had asked the wise man, about one year of age. This is not the story they tell in Christmas plays, is it? This isn't the way they read it in the churches. It isn't the story that you learn when you were brought up. It isn't the story of Christmas, the way it's told in the Western world of Christianity. But it is what eyewitnesses who knew him and walked with him and talked with him and slept with him and ate with him. and were with him for all of his years on this earth of his ministry, knew had occurred. It's what the historians of that time knew had occurred. It's what the people who were eyewitnesses, including Mary, who followed about with Mary Magdalene and the other women, and Martha, her sister, and all the other people, with Jesus Christ, and carried the duffel and the baggage. And it so says on many occasions, and when Mary was standing there weeping at his crucifixion, remember that Mary was there to be interrogated. And these disciples could have enjoyed many a long hour's talk with Mary, the mother of Jesus, about the circumstances surrounding his birth, about their trip into Egypt, about his young boyhood when he was three and five and seven and nine, Wouldn't you have enjoyed after a meal lying down around the camel saddles and everything out of doors with a wonderful fall night with the stars bright overhead, sitting there with Mary having finished a meal, and say, Mary, what, what was he like when he was five? I think it's obvious. I tried to cover things like that in both my books, Peter's story and The Real Jesus, because people want to make these into icons or figures in a stained-glass cathedral, not real human events that really happened, and that people lived these experiences, and that it's real. So it becomes all just so much mythology, the way they stand up and tell it in the churches. This was fulfilled because Jeremiah had predicted in verse 18, in Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Let's turn now to the first chapter of the book of Luke. Parallel account. Luke says a good bit even about the birth of John the Baptist that leads up to it. Verse 26 of Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail. And then the next words are supplied, Highly favored, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, I should say. I should say. Honor, yes. Reverence, of course. Uh, Very warm memories, appreciation, yes. Worship, no. Not even angels are to be worshipped. When the prophets of God would have a bright, shining archangel appear and would fall down and try to grab them by the feet or try to appear to be worshiping them. Worship me not. I'm a fellow servant with you. Worship God. Mary was never to be worshiped. Honored and remembered? Oh, yes. But not worshiped as some member of the God family, overshadowing the little baby in an idol where you look up and pray to her? Never. But certainly when you have millions of people who today were going around and around and around the rosary and I see the women and I saw of course you can't avoid it if you watch television at all on Christmas morning all you're going to see is Christmas so we saw the women standing there making this sign you know in the basilica called Saint Peter's in the Vatican this is very important nobody would want to be standing around like this you know if you have arthritis you just stay out of the basilica because you gotta get your hands like this because that impresses God but this stuff this this is no good you know you don't stand there like that so you make all these funny signs and then they go hail Mary blessed art thou among women blessed is the fruit of thy womb Jesus and they oh, and you don't say it hail Mary blessed art thou among women and the blessed is the fruit of thy womb Jesus oh no hail Mary full of grace you say it so that it gets an echo going in the halls and the corridors of the cathedral and it is very impressive and you know you're getting God's attention hail highly favored the lord is with you blessed are you among women and when she saw him she was troubled at his saying and cast her in mind what kind of a greeting this should be the angel said unto her fear not mary for you have found favor with god and behold you shall conceive in your womb and shall bring forth a son and shall call his name yeshua joseph jesus he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Now that part they never cover. I never had that explained to me in the sixth grade when they made us do the Christmas plays. And the kids had to dress like angels. And the shepherds had to come out with the little shepherd crooks. My mom had to sew and sew and sew endlessly to make out a little brown, a little white cloth, cheesecloth that she could buy, this cheap little costume and they would work so hard and they'd buy the little gold spangles and everything and cut out cardboard and glue them together and strap them over your back and you have your little wings and you know you felt so bad because here you were supposed to be a page boy for one of the kings. I was one time, and I had these long green stockings with a frilly little thing up here, and I had this run in my stockings. She had dyed my sister's stockings green, and I was in a school play, and I come running out saying "Hail, hey, old king," or whatever it was. I said just before I slipped on the lion's skin and went out the door. But anyway, and I noticed that I had a run in my stocking. Oh, how humiliating! You ever been in a Christmas? How many have been in a Christmas play? How I? Oh good, enough of you to know what I'm talking about, and see some of you are so embarrassed as kind of I was. Isn't it horrible? The things they put we kids through trying to emphasize all of this stuff and make it into mythology and tradition when you're little and growing up. And so little children chirp endlessly and make these statements and uh, play the parts of the various people in Christmas plays. But when it comes to this part, I'm sure they read over it very rapidly. He shall give unto him the throne of his father Jacob, or the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. It sort of sits up there and reigns over it. And there it is, and he's reigning. And that's it. But now to go back and to trace through history the fact that David was seated upon a throne, which earlier had belonged to Saul, that God overthrew Saul, and that David was given a covenant with Almighty God through a divine messenger that said that David would never fail. To have his seed sitting somewhere on this earth, on that throne. And to go way back earlier to Israel, whose name used to be Jacob. And to his father Isaac, and to his father Abraham. And to trace through how it said the scepter, that is the kingly line which shall culminate in Christ, shall never depart from Judah and to look at the entire lineage that is given in the two genealogical records in both Luke and Matthew of Jesus that led all the way back to Adam in one case it goes from Joseph to Adam In another case it comes from Adam all the way to Joseph and to look at the fulfillment of this prophecy as being actually literal somewhere on this earth at the time the angel made that message there was someone sitting on the throne of his father David But there was no king in Israel except the lesser line of the Herods. Archelaus came to power shortly after Herod the Great. But somewhere there was the royal seed. Where had they gone? Where were they? Where were they reigning? Why had God said it it would be overturned, 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 and never again overturned until he come whose right it is? Why were there so many prophecies about that stone, the rock that was Christ, and why is it that today in England, when the next coronation takes place, they will once again get out of its secure place where they have put it because of the time when thieves stole it, that ancient old stone with its completely weathered, almost disappeared, old iron rings on each side of it, which I have seen on several occasions, called Jacob's pillar stone, the stone that apparently he set up on end poured oil over when he saw the symbolic Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending upon him, and to fulfill the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Israel of God that his seed would be like the sand of the earth that they would spread abroad to the north, the east, the south, and the west, and that many, many kings would come out of his loins, and that eventually many royal families over many nations would rule in nations all over this earth who would actually be a part of that family. Now when you study ancient Europe, medieval Europe, and Europe even down to today, and you study into the various houses of the Hohenzollerns and the Romanovs and the houses of modern day Denmark, Norway, Sweden, of Belgium, of Holland, of Germany, yes, and of France, and you know that these families were interrelated that Tsar Nicholas was related to them, of all things. It's a fascinating study, of which most professing Christian people are in complete blissful ignorance. And so they read, and little children read over real quickly, He shall inherit the throne of his father David, not knowing that the Bible says of that kingdom there shall never be an end. And that the Savior of the world, who is going to come to rule the world with a rod of iron, is coming to inherit the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob for all eternity. And of his kingdom, a king is a king, and dome is short for dominion. It's an area ruled over by a king, in this case an absolute monarch, whose word is law and who will rule over all the earth. Is there anyone, little children age 6, 10, 11, to ministers in pulpits to the Pope in Rome, who read these scriptures, and in their minds comes the idea of a coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is going to reign and rule over all nations of this world, from Iraq to Afghanistan, from Japan to Mexico, with a rod of iron? I submit to you, not one out of millions know it. Not one out of millions. And it's throughout the Bible. It's the story of Jesus' inheritance. It's a main part of why he came to qualify for world rulership. And what have they done? They've made him a little baby and stuck him off in a corner. That's where all the Christmas stuff and the wrappings and the old tree with the tinsel and all the gifts and that's where some of the old broken toys and thankfully that's where all the music is going as of tonight and tomorrow. Now some of the music is beautiful, I mean absolutely gorgeous and I used to sing it in an a cappella choir and I love some of it and some of it would be perfectly all right with me to sing today as long as it doesn't have Santa Claus or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or pagan accoutrements in it. If it's merely adoring Christ, worshiping God uh, Almighty King, etc. There's some gorgeous music, don't get me wrong. I'm just merely characterizing the way many people are, that to them Jesus is like a talisman, he's like a uh, once upon a time baby who was here, he died, he's gone way off somewhere, and in the same way you put away the Christmas orbs in the closet until next year, so Christ is just put away, out of their lives, is he on a moment-to-moment day-to-day basis in the conduct of their businesses, their jobs, their homes, their families, their lives, their child rearing, their diet, their exercise, their entertainment, their choices in culture, in literature, in art, in music, where they go, what they do. Is he their boss? Is he their master? Is he the one in charge? Another question, is he their hero? who are the heroes of today some of them are in trouble aren't they who is your hero who is the hero of young people today you wouldn't know jesus christ if he walked in here in a green suit and sat down beside you you wouldn't have the faintest idea who this guy was average ordinary and furthermore we could take a piece of chalk and i could have a blackboard and i could say okay all of you come up one by one tell me what you think his height was and we'd have a bunch of chalk from there to there because you wouldn't know if he's 5'6 and a quarter, 5'9", five, 5'11, five, or 6'2. You wouldn't have the faintest idea. You wouldn't know whether he tended to be a little slim and wiry or short and stocky. You'd know he'd be in great health. You wouldn't have the faintest idea the real color of his hair. You might think dark brown might be close, but he might have been redheaded. And because he was the son of David, and there are a lot of redheaded Jews, and there are a lot of blonde Jews. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of freckle faced, redheaded people over there in Israel. And David was flaming red-haired with a red beard. He was ruddy, with a ruddy complexion like a lot of Scots and a lot of people that come from that family. He might have been a redhead. We don't know. He could walk in here and sit down beside you. And if you could talk to him for about ten minutes, you would think you had met the bald eagle of the old Lil Abner strip. Because about the first bit of absolute fluff and nonsensical foolishness that came out of your mouth... He would say something to you that would so shock you, would be so awkward to you, would be so against the grain socially, the kind of thing people just don't say to each other, that you would be astounded at what he said. When he came here, they were astonished at what he said. They were astounded at his doctrine. They were astonished, not by his appearance, but by his message, by what he said. Jesus Christ of Nazareth... Is worthy of the worship of angels and he's worthy of your worship now this is not the appropriate time of the year but because the whole world which is steeped and lost in paganism believes this is Christ's birthday I wanted to refresh our memory about Jesus Christ and events surrounding his birth now a little later on when Mary gave her what's called the Magnificat and that prayer of exaltation begins in verse 46 and there are several verses of it. Then we read of Elizabeth's time, and we hear as we read through all of these accounts of how even angels were rejoicing. In the second chapter of the book of Luke, we read this because this is one of the scriptures again that is read so often at this time, in, the verse, in verse 8, that were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Isn't that interesting? The angel came upon them. Once again, it may appear of a blinding light. And the glory was shining around them because it lit up the countryside. And they were really afraid. And the angel said, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news, a great good announcement of great happiness, of great joy, which shall be to everybody, all people, Japanese, Africans, Asians for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior which is Christ the Lord and this shall be a sign unto you you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger and suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of them suddenly thousands of them appeared praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth if you read the original Peace among men of goodwill, not peace on earth toward or goodwill toward men, but read the original and you will understand that it implies action on the part of men. Men in whom is goodwill shall know peace. There's not some benign blessing here like some papal benediction, peace when they're lobbing martyrs into the shopping mart in Sarajevo. This is nonsense, and that isn't what the original implies at all. My point is that, yes, it is a wonderful and a momentous and a fabulous and a joyous occasion, the birth of Christ, something historically that we should not be deprived of. Now, what I want to tell you is that in my years of growing up and in all of my years in the, in the church and the ministry, I think there has been overemphasis on the denigration of Christmas, it's almost to where we are threatened by Christmas that is so evil and it is so bad and so pagan that we want nothing to do with it. If somebody says, Merry Christmas, we're embarrassed, we don't know what to say. Oh, thank you. Or, oh, I, uh, I'm not, uh, I don't keep it. And so we have offended people oftentimes. We turn them, turn them away, we put them off. We haven't known how to deal with it. And I think that it's time that we understood something from the Word of God about the birth of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take a moment and read to you a little segment out of the book of, uh, out of uh, the Companion Bible, Appendix 179. And all of you that hear this along the tape program, and those of you that fancy yourselves scholars, I did not write this. This is from Dr. Bullinger, who was dead long before I was born, a British scholar of great note. And he wasn't perfect, wasn't right about everything, but I believe in this he is. And if you look at the parallel datings, there are two big, long pages, a very fine print of how he has gone back all the way from the Annunciation of the Angels, the six months difference between the birth of John the Baptist and of Christ, the course of Abijah, the amount of time required for him to go back home, the period of time when Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was struck dumb, the Annunciation, his name shall be John, the Time when the two babes left in the womb, when Elizabeth and Mary came together, who were cousins, the entire thing. Now, let me read this portion to you. After these two pages of this incredible chronology involving the begetting of the Lord and his birth, it thus appears, and this is in Appendix 179 of Bollinger's Companion Bible, it thus appears without the shadow of a doubt that the day assigned to the birth of the Lord, in other words, December 25th, was the day on which he was begotten of the holy spirit by numahagion the divine power and his birth took place on the 15th of ethanim ethanim i should pronounce it september 29th in the year following thus making beautifully clear the meaning of john 1:14 the word became flesh on first tebeth or december 25th and tabernacled the greek word is Sknosin with us on 15th of Ethanim, or September 29th in 4 B.C. The 15th of Ethanim Tisri was the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. About five or six years ago, I spoke on this subject in our other building. As the years have progressed, I've read it and reread it. I've studied it, and I have become pretty well convinced. This is not dogma. Somebody wants to argue about it, I think they are the loser. I think it's to their uh, chagrin and it's their problem. But to me the typology is virtually inescapable. And of course we have all known what it is that Easter uh, obfuscates and confuses and what it counterfeits and what we don't see in Easter. But we have never understood what it is that Christ mass or the mass of Christ or Christmas Obscures and confuses and prevents the world from understanding. This is quite an interesting article. It's very lengthy and I can't take time to read it all. The circumcision, therefore, took place on the eighth day of the feast, the last great day, 22nd of Ethanim. October 6th to 7th, Leviticus twenty-three, thirty-three to 43, so that these two momentous events fall into their proper place and order. And the real reason is made clear why the 25th of December is associated with our Lord and was set apart by the apostolic church to commemorate the stupendous event of the word becoming flesh and not, as we have so long been led to suppose, the commemoration of a pagan festival. An overwhelmingly strong argument in favor of the correctness of this view lies in the fact that the date of the festival of Michael and all angels has been from the very early times on the day of the 29th of September, but the church even then had lost sight of the reason why this date, rather than any other of the calendar, should be so associated with the great angelic festival. The following expresses the almost universal knowledge, or rather want of knowledge, of Christendom on the subject. We pass on now to consider in the third place the commemoration of September 29th, the festival of Michael Mass. It does not appear at all certain that this was the original special idea of the commemoration of the day. That is from Smith's Dictionary of Chronology and Antiquities. A reference, however, to the table and statements above makes the original special idea why the festival of Michael and all angels is held on September 29th abundantly clear. Our Lord was born on that day, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. A little later on, he says this. The Annunciation by the angel Gabriel marked the, he uses the Greek word, genesis of Matthew 1.18, and the first words of John 1.14. The Announcements to the Shepherds by the Archangel Michael marked the birth of our Lord. John 1.14 is read as though, quote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and they were one and the same thing whereas there are two clauses the paragraph should read thus and this is from the original greek the word became flesh ho logos sarkes egeneto and tabernacled among us kai eskēnōsen en hēmin and he gives the correct rendering of that verse in john the word became flesh and tabernacled among us the word tabernacled here preserved receives beautiful significance from the knowledge that the lord of glory was quote, found in fashion as a man thus tabernacling in human flesh and that in turn shows in beautifully equal uh, equal beautifully significance that our lord was born on the first day of the great jewish feast of tabernacles in other words the 15th of tishri corresponding to september 29th bc4 isn't that interesting it's here in a book which can be purchased from zondervan by people in any bible bookstore that is read by protestants all over the world and certainly long predates me i didn't invent it i'm not its author but i think the scholarship is awfully difficult to argue against so any of you scholars out there that decide you don't like what i just said and christ probably wasn't really born on the first day of the feast of tabernacles i would submit to you you need to submit a scholarly treatise which completely demolishes, destroys, and dismantles all the chronology that Bullinger looked up and researched, and all of the information in that particular appendix from which I just read excerpts. And then perhaps you might have a point. I doubt that you will be successful. I think also that the typology is virtually inescapable, and that the Feast of Tabernacles has, in our understanding, become richer and fuller with far greater understanding than ever before. Now, I think that our families are missing a point, and this business of gift-giving, you can have no real uh, feelings of hostility toward that all by itself. I know you can make fun of it. You can say, well, they ought to give their gifts to Christ. Why are they exchanging it among themselves? We've hit that theme for years and years and years. They all show up at the manger and they say, here, George, here's your gold. Thanks, here's your myrrh and they walk away and say nothing at all to the one who was lying there, who is Jesus in whose honor the day is supposed to be. But be that as it may, using that as a technique in the past, I think we've overdone that a little bit. And I would say, since we have in articles voiced our opinion that the festival tithe is for you and is your tithe, and is not for the church, it's not for the home office, it's not for Tyler, it's not for the work, it's for you to save for your family, that if you're making a reasonably good income you can save ten percent of it and have a good bit of money and when you look at how many people have a Christmas savings plan or even borrow money or go out and spend on a credit card for which there's whacked about 17 to 21 percent to purchase gifts to lavish on people they love at Christmas time think about the Feast of Tabernacles of how nice it would be if the wife bought the husband a new suit, or he bought her a nice new dress, or they bought the children new clothing, or a new toy, or books, or whatever. But that there was a little bit more of that kind of family giving at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Not in celebration of Christ's birth, because the Bible does not tell us to celebrate Christ's birth, but it says to bestow upon yourself whatsoever your soul earnestly desires at the time of the feast, doesn't it, in good food and good drink. And I think oftentimes people have not thought that they could use that festival tithe, maybe even in repairing their car, maybe buying a new set of tires that they had to to get to the feast, maybe in saving it up for two or three years and deciding, I want to go see England, or saving it up for two or three years and saying, I want to go to Australia but certainly making the feast of tabernacles in our lives in god's church a fabulous wonderful thing my wife has told me so many times of what a warm fabulous wonderful comfortable time christmas was for her family and the big tree they had and that they had a big family of eight siblings and that everybody got everybody else something and the way this day was in the hammer family when she was a little girl there are lots of you sitting in this room and thousands along the tape a uh, program that will hear these statements that will have the same nostalgic memories. Don't put people down because of family, because of home, because of wanting to give, because of love. Just be someone who understands the truth and is willing to share it. But you don't, you know, idle bashing is uh, a dangerous pastime you don't immediately turn people away and alienate them and get them to where they will never speak to you again by taking one of the most important warm family-oriented comfortable times in the year and just spit on it and trample all over it and destroy it and make fun of it and make light of it to people in this world who don't understand christ is their savior too he came to save the entire world black brown yellow white It doesn't matter of what race, of what nation, He is our Savior. The fact that He was born caused angels to display, flipping and zipping around and singing like a gigantic 10,000 voice choir, hallelujah, and praising God in heavens above, because long ago, on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, in the autumn, when the shepherds were still out in the fields, Christ the Savior had been born. We should thank and praise God that this is so. Don't let the world take away from us thanksgiving that Christ was born and the celebration of his babyhood, his boyhood, his life, and his ministry any more than we want them to take away from us the fact that he is going to return and call us right into his own bosom and make us a part of the kingdom that he is going to set up and give us a a position of rulership in it with God his father and ours. So don't be threatened by Christmas. Understand, don't use it as a weapon against the world. Use it as an entry to win people to greater understanding for God's church.